Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, Patrick Antonetti, one guest on this week's podcast, but uh, and a little something different, but uh, I think you will enjoy it. Alan Seppenwald is Rolling Stone's chief TV critic. He writes just brilliant pieces when it comes to the shows of the moment that you're watching. He's currently just on an incredible run when it comes to his uh, his pieces on Succession, which is what uh, the focus of most of our conversation is in this podcast. If you like Barry, he's been all over that. And then obviously previous, uh, his work on The Sopranos, or Game of Thrones, Mad Men, The Wire, Star Wars. Uh, if you're a television fan, you probably know who Alan Seppenwall is. He's, uh, he's one of the great writers out there when it comes to this stuff. And we go pretty deep just on his process, how he puts together his succession reviews, uh, what he thinks about when he's doing these kind of reviews on television. How important is it to stick the landing when it comes to a series finale? And we get into uh, Mad Men and The Wire and uh, Breaking Bad, etc. So, um, and then uh, we end on uh, some talk on the Star Wars universe and just how we or how he sees uh, all the uh, various uh, new Star Wars projects that are out there. So a little something different, not sports media, but uh, really one of the terrific uh, writers of culture in the United States. Alan Sepinwall of Rolling Stone coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, I'm very excited about this guest. Um, is a little off the beaten path for this podcast. Alan Sepinwall is Rolling Stone's chief TV critic. If you are interested in television, and particularly prestige television, his name is probably familiar. In my opinion, um, nobody has written better work on Succession than Alan Sepinwall, but he's really well-known in terms of, like, if you're a fan of... Uh, the Sopranos or The Wire or Barry, again, any kind of prestige television um, Alan Sepinwall is writing about. But it's not just like reviews that he does. He uh, takes you, I think, really inside like the filmmaker or the storytelling process in addition to giving you plot points. And and that's a real skill when it comes to writing. And uh, and I'm pleased to be joined by Alan Sepinwall. Alan, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I know this is, you know, you don't do a lot of sports media podcasts, uh, Alan. Although you've been on train as podcast at Sports Illustrated, so this is not so foreign to you. Yeah, if, if you're not careful, I'll start talking about the Knicks for a half an hour. Well, that's fine. Well, you know, at this point, you'll be talking about them for the next seven months because they won't be playing. So uh, Yeah, well yeah, some, yeah. Might as well get some. No, I'm not knocking. I'm just saying you might as well get some offseason uh, <laughs> chatter. Um, the league is always better when the Knicks are good, so I'm certainly not a Knicks hater. Yes. All right. Um, I want to get more into process here uh, because, you know, you, there's a number of places where you'll be able to discuss um, the show's excels. But I, I want to talk about Succession because, again, um, y- your work has has amplified my enjoyment of this show. So 
One of the things that, at least from my perspective as an outsider, is that you must have at least the show in advance, generally speaking, to be able to write the kind of piece that you write and publish it so shortly after the episode is first run. Could you take my listeners into the process of how it works for you? Okay, and that's that is generally but not always the case. And certainly it would be like physically impossible to publish something right after it's finished if I hadn't seen it in advance. And so usually I get episodes uh, in advance with succession this season. I've tended to get them on the Wednesday morning before they air. I watch them that day. I go about my business. Otherwise, you know, I take notes while I watch it. I do other things. And then either Thursday or Friday, I sort of have ruminated and figured out exactly what I want to say. And then I spend, you know, several hours actually writing the recaps. But for instance, on the series finale this weekend, I am not seeing it in advance. They didn't give it to any of us. They claim like even if they wanted to, they couldn't because it's still being edited at this point. So you're going to have a bunch of really grouchy TV writers on the Sunday night of Memorial Day weekend having to watch this live and formulate a thought immediately afterwards. I've had to do have had to do this a few times in the past for the final seasons of Game of Thrones for the second half of Mad Men and a few others. And you can do it. I'm, you know, it's sort of like being an athlete at a certain point, you start to feel a little too old for this. Uh, And I may doze off in the middle of of writing the recap, but I'm going to try to get it done on Sunday. (laughs) By the way, they're not editing anything. They just don't want to give it up. And I, I I can respect that. Um, So when you're, um, when you're doing, when you're, when you're part of this process, are you someone who will, you, do you stop and, like rewatch scenes. Um, do you have your laptop nearby and you start to like maybe jot down some uh, themes or maybe you figure out a lead? Like how? Um, I'm so fascinated by the process. Like how how does it work for someone like you um, in order to get these pieces to where you want them to be? I have a really obsessive, you know, bordering on pathological method, which is when I watch an episode of TV, if it's something I'm going to recap, especially, but in most cases, if I'm going to review it, I have my laptop out. I type really, really fast. It's the one sort of it's the best skill I retained from high school. And so I'm basically acting like a court stenographer and I'm taking notes. I'm writing down everything that is happening in a scene. You know, Kendall enters the room. You know, Roman says a joke and I write down whatever the joke is. You know, this happens. That happens. You know, cousin Greg, you know, spills some some lemon soda on decision Darwin, whatever. Uh, And so and then. In the midst of that, I am also, if I have a particular opinion on something or if there's a particular line or thing that happens that I know I'm going to want to refer to in my recap, I write that out in all caps right away and keep going. So that way, like it's a pain in the butt. But when it comes time for me to then go and write, I have this real time, not only list of basically everything, but this real time reaction of I thought this, I thought this. Like this idea came into my head. I can link this to this, et cetera. Um, And so in the old days with some shows, I would go back and rewatch a second time, sometimes even a third. But I've gotten pretty good about not having to do that. Occasionally, I will go back and check a scene if I'm not 100% sure the order in which something happened or if I didn't get the quote quite right. But uh, I don't usually have to do that. 
We all have editors. Is your editor as obsessive a fan of the television that you write about as you are? Um, I just changed editors a few months ago, and they're they're both obsessive TV fans, although not always about the exact same thing. So that's been interesting to see, like who was excited about one thing versus who was excited about another. It's it's definitely been fun sometimes to convert an editor to a show they don't care about. So my my former editor. I would not stop t- talking to her about this HBO show called The Leftovers that like five people remember, but I think it's one of the greatest things that ever aired. And eventually she watched it. And then suddenly that was all we talked about for months and months. Um, so my current editor is a big succession fan, but he's not getting the screeners. And so I feel almost guilty that he's editing these recaps before he's watched the episode. What, you know, to me, like, the skill level that you and the other people who really, really do this well. Um, again, I don't know this, but I, I'll, I'll sort of make a presumption. You must have some kind of relationship with the filmmakers, at least even in terms of like interviewer and subject every now and then. Um, so let's just take succession for a second. Like, have you talked multiple times to the filmmakers? And if so, has that helped your writing process when you're ultimately putting what you put down, um, you know, pen to paper that someone like myself then ultimately reads. That is a good assumption on your part. And it is often the case and usually the case with a lot of the shows I write about. This is a rare exception to that. The only succession interview I've ever done is I interviewed Sarah Snook several weeks ago after, you know, the, the episode where Logan died. Um, and that's it. Ah. I didn't really start covering the show heavily until season three, in part because I took a really long time to warm to it, which is sort of unusual for me, especially for a show I wound up loving as much as I do now. Usually, though, I do a lot of these interviews. I'll do season ending postmortem, series ending postmortems. I'll interview writers. I'll interview directors. Sometimes I'll interview actors, especially if the actors are really good at articulating what they do, like Snook, like, you know, a Ray Seahorn on Better Call Saul, you know, whatever. Um And that can be helpful, but at this point, I've been doing it long enough that I feel like even if I never did those interviews, I would be able to take a lot out of just what I'm seeing on the screen, the decisions they're making, especially when I've been watching a show for a few years and have a much better sense of what they like to do and what they're good at and what they aren't. Mm. Man, Sarah Snook is just a brilliant actress. And just to actually hear her talk like in an interview and then you hear the Australian accent, it's very mind blowing um, to then watch her performances uh, shiv. But uh, I mean, she is just a phenomenal actress. How do you um, how do you judge success uh, when it comes to your pieces? And is there any metric element involved in your judging, meaning certain amount of page views or, you know? Uh, I mean, success to me is if if I feel it turned out well, and sometimes I think it really does. I think most of my succession pieces this year I've been really proud of. A lot of the time, like I'll write a recap, and at a certain point, I just sort of feel like I don't quite have it, but I need to write something, so this is what it's going to be, and that'll be fine. Um, And I haven't had that feeling at all with this. So, So for me, it's more of a creative thing than anything else. I can look at traffic numbers if I want to. I've been at other places where my editors have basically locked me out of the traffic views because they know that like, if I had access to them, that's all I would do all day. And so, <laughs> and so over the years, the fact that they stopped doing that, I think took me out of the habit of it. So even though I can track what we do now on rollingstone.com, I mostly don't. And so, and sometimes I'm even surprised by when I have a thing that does really well versus I have a thing that doesn't because it can be r- really random. I wrote this piece last month i think on an amazon show called citadel and it was the most read story on rollingstone.com all month and i didn't think really anybody would care about that so it's 
the, the internet can be a strange place sometimes, but uh, to me, it's mainly, do I think this thing is good? And do like people then tell me afterwards, wow, you made me think about this episode in a different way, which is always sort of the goal. It's very clear and understandably so how many people who work in the news media love this show. You know, and you just you go on Twitter anytime. It's a very, very big discussion point, particularly a very, very big discussion point for people who work at major, major legacy places. That said, Alan, and you would know this a lot better than me, if you were going to compare like the literal viewership of Succession to uh, many other shows, it, it wouldn't be close. Like it's, it's nowhere near the most popular uh, show in America. So I set that sort of up to ask you, like how... How do I sort of phrase this? Um, how much are we being inundated by succession because it's of such interest to the media versus the actual interest of the show itself? Uh, I think it's both because this is far from the first time you've had a situation like this where the actual viewership is tiny compared to you know how much it's written about. Mad Men was a classic case of that. Like the Mad Men ratings which were easier to gauge at the time because there wasn't streaming, there wasn't as much time-shifted viewing, et cetera, were still a fraction of something like, you know, Burn Notice, which literally, I think, they you know aired on the same night in their first seasons. Uh, but you didn't see nearly as much writing about Burn Notice because even though that was a more popular show and it showed that the people who watched it really liked, there was a lot less to say about that. And I think that's often where you see people gravitating to these shows, especially with the kind of recapping that I do a lot of. It's... You want to find shows that people really want to think about and really want to talk about and really want to argue about. And, you know, with a procedural or even something like Yellowstone, there's just not as much necessarily there to dig into. And so you would probably rather just watch it. And so you don't necessarily see people going as crazy about it, either in terms of the amount they write about it or just in the amount of like social media chatter that you see. Yeah, Yellowstone's a great example, just obviously given the viewership numbers. Um, How do you feel just conceptually, philosophically, about writing pieces where you're ultimately making predictions of what will happen to these characters? And obviously in the case of Succession... The, the ultimate question is always sort of who on who who quote unquote ends up on top by the end. Of the uh, I definitely do it a lot. I even did it a little bit in my latest piece on the penultimate episode. And I always feel weird about it, both because I'm usually terrible at it. You know, when you go back and look at most of my predictions, they're pretty awful almost all of the time. Um, when I've when I've taken old recaps and put them into books like I did for the Soprano sessions or Breaking Bad 101, I have to obviously strip all of that out. And I found in some cases, like, that's what most of the recap was about. So I have to start over. Um, I think we're we're sort of naturally drawn to that. There's a sense of, like, you want to maybe not outsmart the show, but you want to sort of say, all right, I've been watching this a while. I feel like I know where it's going, even though it's already it's already happened. So it's not like sports gambling or something where you're still waiting on it. Like, you're talking about something that was written directed edited completed months ago and yet you assume like you know you you can sort of have a read on it but like i do it i'm naturally just you know feel compelled to do it and we all do and that's why it'll be a nice thing when i'm watching the finale on sunday is i will no longer have to predict anything it just the story will be complete do you have a personal preference as a viewer as to how that show 
should end uh, or how not like really like so, a, a couple of people have asked me that you know i even turned down like being part of some magazine peach piece where they were asking different critics that exact question because i didn't necessarily have an answer i know some people have talked about like you know wouldn't it be funny if it ends with greg in charge of the company right seeing that yeah, that's kind of the hot me, new and to new me that thesis. i think that would probably right. be disappointing although jesse armstrong is a great writer and maybe he would find a way to make it satisfying but it feels like a little bit too jokey for a show that, yes, I think is primarily a comedy, but is also sort of laced with tragedy and despair. And I think Greg is ultimately too light a character that even if the idea of putting him on the throne is to say, look how terrible everything is that this idiot winds up in charge, it still largely plays as a joke. And it doesn't feel like this is a show that should ultimately end on a joke like that. One of the things that when you were coming on, I wanted to ask you about is the um, the idea of sticking the landing for these shows, yeah. which I just find fascinating. In the midst of just, uh, you know, I just sort of was just sort of taking my own notes. There's probably a million of these, but I was trying to think about before you came on. All right, what shows really had a season had a had a series finale, which was incredibly satisfying to its audience? So Breaking Bad, New Heart, Mad Men. Uh, Saint Elsewhere, maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. You have a better sense of that. The Wire, I think more Wire fans would probably say they were satisfied than not. Maybe Mash fits into that. Um, so when thinking about this show, which has been a brilliant show, particularly like the last couple of years, like how important is it for this to finish strong? And would people think of it differently if the series finale does not match the quality of of everything that came before it? I think in general, it matters more with shows that are very sort of plot forward, where what happens is ultimately the most important thing. Because if you if you biff that at the end, if you don't actually have the story go to a satisfying place, you're going to leave a bad taste in people's mouths. And I've seen that happen a number of times. But I've also seen a lot of finales of beloved shows that were either sort of divisive or outright disliked. You know, the Sopranos finale, people, there's still people arguing about whether that, you know, was good or not or what that meant or anything. You know, you mentioned Mad Men. Correct. I remember the night the Mad Men finale aired. There's a lot of people like, I don't know how I, I don't know how I feel that we like the final it. note yeah. is like yeah. Don finds enlightenment right. and write, writes a Coke commercial. Um, yeah. But, but what I'm saying it. is, yeah, I don't feel like that or even Lost. I definitely, there were people at the time who were very angry at Lost. Um, and you know, for them, I guess they were thinking right. more about the plot than anything else. And it was not as, as strong on that front, but I think like, if you love the show, you're still going to ultimately love the show. Whereas if you're waiting to see what happens and they really mess that up at the end, the example I always give is not a drama. It's how I met your mother, which was that CBS sitcom. And you're like, you're waiting nine years to sort yeah, of yeah. get to the story of how he meets the mother. And you finally get there. And 30 seconds after you get there, you find out that the mother is dead and he's now getting ready to go and date Kobe Smulders character. And it's just like, wait, what? Like, this is what you've been leading towards. This is terrible. And now I never, ever want to go back and rewatch any of that. And that's a show I once really, really liked. So it, it can happen. I definitely yeah. understand why people feel that way. I don't think this is going to be one of those shows. Like, even if people are not satisfied with the conclusion, I think the affection for it is so strong. Like just, you know, personally, if it ends with Greg on the throne, I'm going to think that's probably not what I want, but it's not going to lessen my overall feelings about it. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I think obviously how you felt about the 2016 election had a lot to do with how you felt about the election episode that Succession just did. And one of the things I want to ask you about that particular episode is it's been a long time since I watched something and kind of viscerally felt uncomfortable uh, about uh, a TV show, like in a good way. I, um, you know, ele- <laughs> I watched, I've watched so many um uh, like West Wings and shows like that, you know, where they'll have like the election episode and like, you know, it could be great, good television, interesting. You never really, you know, you walk away and then go back to the rest of your life and you don't even sort of think about it. But they sort of nailed that, uh, I thought, um, even to the point where, um, you know, in the follow up episode where Kieran Culkin's character uh, goes outside in the middle of like a protest in New York and it sort of is a good flashback to Shiv Roy saying things do happen. Um, you know, in, in terms of like, they didn't just make a night of television. They may have changed the country. Um, as someone who writes about this stuff, uh, to me, that was really just some brilliant, like writing and filmmaking to be able to actually turn a television, uh, to, to turn a television show ultimately about, a uh, a television show on election night, but to make it that tense and compelling was pretty brilliant. I wonder just how you saw that episode in relation to some of the other great episodes you've written about over the years in different shows. That was agonizing to watch. Like I thought it was great, but like I got that screen around 9 a.m. and I put it on a few minutes after that and I did not finish it until 11 or 1130 because every Mm. five minutes or so I had to pause, take a breath. At least once I like went for a walk around the block and came back and had to keep going just because it felt so raw and so evocative of the the, you know, the worst aspects of the last two elections and just all a lot of things that have happened in the last eight years or so of American political right. life that I'm like, I don't really want to be experiencing this again, but they're making me and I had to go. And it was it was just sort of like magnificently put together. It was just excruciating. There's a couple of episodes of The Office that are sort of like that, where I can, the first time I watched it, I thought, this is incredible. I will never put this on again as long as I live. You cannot pay me enough. (laughs) Right. Uh, That's funny. Um, One thing about The Sopranos, uh, David Chase seemed to like you. He really took a life. I don't know if David Chase is from Jersey, like yourself. We grew up in adjacent towns several decades apart. Ah, Okay, so yeah, so he's a Jersey guy. Probably read the Star Ledger, your former yep. place. Do, do you? I mean, that obviously was 
professionally incredibly advantageous to you. But why do you think that was? You know, there are there are writers sometimes that a that a filmmaker they just gravitate to for whatever reason. They got a great rapport. They like them. They trust them, and they ultimately give them things that they don't maybe give other writers. Why was that? The, why has that been the case for you and David? Chase? I mean, definitely the home field advantage cannot be understated. Like he grew up. I think he delivered the Star Ledger at some point as like a childhood job. So he has he has tremendous affection for the paper. Um, Matt Zoller cites my former colleague at the Star Ledger with whom I co-wrote the Soprano Sessions wrote about the show for the first three years of it. He wrote it incredibly well and he really impressed David with sort of his passion for the filmmaking and his understanding of what David was trying to do. And so right you know, there and then he was already sort of predisposed to like me, I guess, when I took over. And it helped that I think he just he felt that I got what he was trying to do. And I didn't ask the same questions that everybody else was asking him. And he is someone who has very little patience for answering stuff he doesn't want to answer or that he thinks is dumb. And I've, you know, been sort of lucky or good enough or whatever to usually not try his patience. So we've had a good relationship over the years. I mean, I'm I'm sure the answer is going to be yes, and then, uh, you know, you can sort of expand on it, because that's what I'm interested in. But, like, how much does being from New Jersey influence your tastes? I know that for me, um, spending most of my life as an adult in New York City, and now I live in Toronto, like, those two cities absolutely influence, like, me just in terms of how I think and, and some of the things I like and experience. Luckily, working at Sports Illustrated, I got a chance to see the world, so I don't feel that too insular. But for you, as someone who writes about culture, yeah. you know to put it in the broad capital c like how much just being from new jersey influence all the stuff all your thinking basically no it absolutely does and i it's a little bit new jersey i think a lot more of it is just sort of like tri-state area you know because you know ah, you're you're okay. you're either in new york a lot or you're like reading in the paper or watching on the tv or whatever about things in new york and you're interacting with those kinds of people there's definitely like from new jersey there's always the sense of like you're near the action but you're not in the action and that was definitely one of the themes of the sopranos and so when you have things like that about people who never quite get uh, up to the level of what they want. I very much can understand that mentality because I was from a place that was near it, but not in it. Um, so that's absolutely a part of it as well. You know, you write for you, you write for the audience, people like me who consume it, but ultimately as part of that audience, um, there's a chance that the actors who perform in this stuff read you. There's definitely a chance. I think that the filmmakers read you. I know the PR people for sure yeah. read you, but is it important? Like, is it important for you? Um, like, do you want to like eventually hear from Jesse Armstrong or Sarah Snook or, you know, previous like, um, you know, like uh, the game of Thrones founders, or obviously you've heard from David Chase, but like, I'm not asking like that you want them to like what you write because that's not yeah. really the point. But are you interested that they are interested in what you have to write because they are ultimately, you know what I mean? They're 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 creating the world that you that you are ultimately um, engaged in as a writer. Uh, it's a strange thing, especially since social media really you know became big. Of like. Now you're actually hearing more directly from the people whose shows you're covering, which includes actors, which includes writers, directors, producers, et cetera. And I, be, you know, I get along with a lot of these people, you know, some of whose work I love, some of whose work I think is just okay, but they're, you know, nice people or they're a fun Twitter follower or whatever. Uh, and so it's this weird thing, but in some ways it's very healthy. Uh, because like it's a reminder that these are people and you can write negative things without making it personal. And I always try to do that. I try to say like, I hate something, but I'm not going to be mean in the way I talk about it. 
Um, but in terms of like whether I want to hear from them, I I'd be lying if I said like it wasn't cool if someone I thought was great reached out to me and said, hey, I read your thing. Like, you know, I, I'm a human being. Yeah. But I, I can't ultimately be writing for that audience. Like my my recaps and my reviews are not my attempt to give network notes. They're, you know, they're designed for the audience, which is the reader as opposed to the, you know, the, the people making the shows. Um, and if they get something, if the people making the shows get something out of it, that's nice. But that, you know, that's a happy byproduct as opposed to the end goal. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Like, uh, I really like... Um uh jay smith cameron yes. on twitter uh i just think she's like very cool to engage with like people who are really into her show she plays jerry kelman just for on sections for people who don't know and uh, one or two times like she's either commented to me or retweeted me and i was like yeah this is pretty damn cool like someone like an actress i really respect and i think is great like you know for 20 seconds actually took some of my stupid sports media nonsense and and sent it out there so uh so i do get that but yeah you can never really write for those people yeah. because then i think you do a disservice to and, and, all, and also the one other thing i, I would say go. is i've had an Go experience ahead. where it's gone the other way where the people who work on the shows read me and are not happy with what i've written and that can get unpleasant right. and obviously like i'm not gonna you know couch my opinion to avoid that but that's happened a number of times no, welcome to the sports media writing world, Al. Um, the uh, I want the, the 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 something that like is curious to me because I obviously experience in my world, but I don't know how it works for you. How often do you hear from public relations people about whether you're writing a review or some kind of takeout piece on a show? Um, and are they trying at all either before or afterwards to manage the piece? Usually because I'm because I'm a critic and I'm not doing reporting, I basically don't hear from people before I do stuff, which is which is nice. But I right. will hear after not a lot, definitely not as much as I may have earlier in my career. I think at a certain point, like I've been doing this a long time. I'm sort of at a certain I'm considered to be at a certain level among my peers. And I think people yep. know at this point, like you're not going to like change my mind. And it's, you know, if anything, it'll be counterproductive. If you do that, but I do hear occasionally, I will definitely hear it more if I get something factual, if I get something that somebody else feels is factually wrong. Um, and my instance of this, if you've got a couple of minutes, it's a good story. Um, okay. Yeah, please. This, in, this involves the 2016 election, sort of, amusingly enough, which is uh, the Celebrity <laughs> Apprentice was in its early years. And I thought it was really terrible. And I was someone who had liked original Recipe Apprentice a fair amount in its first few seasons. And I wrote a column for the star ledger, basically lamenting the fact that like this show that once upon a time seemed like this fun little exercise and, you know, creativity and business and stuff at a certain point had just become basically a testament to the ego of the guy hosting it and how just sort of like everything was about kissing up to him and every, like every decision he was making seemed erratic. And thus to me, it was not a surprise that ratings for celebrity apprentice were way down from the ratings for the original show in its first few years. I write this, publish it. The next day, I get a call from a young woman who says, I'm calling from the Trump organization. Uh, Mr. Trump was hoping you would print a retraction of your column. And I said, what do, what do you mean? What, what, what retraction? It's an opinion piece. And she said, well, there was there were some factual inaccuracies in there. And I said, what? And she said, well, you said that the ratings for Celebrity Apprentice are down when, in fact, and she starts rattling off different demographic statistics about previous seasons of Celebrity Apprentice. And I listen patiently and I stop her and I finally say, 
uh, I was not comparing it to other Celebrity Apprentice. I was comparing it to the original run of the show. And the ratings are, in fact, way down and the rest of its opinion. So there's nothing to retract. Uh, and there's a very long pause. And in that pause, you can detect a whole lot about what is going to happen to this person when the phone call ends. And then she says, so you won't be printing a retraction then? And I said, no, I'm sorry. And we said goodbye. <laughs> Imagine I did not. And I felt very bad for her for what she was about to have to deal with. But like, you know. Again, one of the nice things about being someone who are 99.9% of what you write as opinion is you, you don't usually have to deal with that. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The last thing I um, I wanted to ask you about is, again, you've done so many shows and so many things that I'd be fascinated by. I could, you know, if I, I should really have you on for 64 hours and we could just do everything I want to do. Um, but the Star Wars universe, um, I really enjoyed your work on Andor. Um, which I really, really liked. I thought it actually found its stride by the mm -hmm. end. I love Rogue One. You know, there's a lot of Star Wars fans who make the argument that that's truly the best Star Wars film. Um, in when I, you know, when both of us were young, like the the whole notion of the Star Wars universe was essentially the movies, and you'd have to obviously have to wait until you get the next one. Now it's all fluttered all over Disney Plus, sort of part of I feel like the prestige television universe i know i'm asking you a very very broad question but whether it's um uh whether it's andor whether it's the mandalorian whether it's like the spin-off or the short i should say the short run series on obi-wan or boba fett how have you what what is your sort of overall thought on just where this has gone as a as a television play because it's just really really fascinating to me that they've actually been able to successfully franchise this now to create all these different television entities. it's been interesting i mean definitely like the fact that they started off with the mandalorian was great for them because that was especially in that first season a really fun show that satisfied basically everyone and it's so rare these days to find something where everybody likes it and you have varying degrees of that. And some people would complain about, you know, some episodes like the one where they they fought the people in the swamp to protect the village, like the, the Magnificent Seven ripoff. It's like, well, that's just, that's just filler. That's not advancing right. the story. And it's like, yeah, but was it entertaining? Uh, but, so, but for the most part, people really liked it. So that was good. And then it's been kind of up and down. And I think people mostly weren't uh, huge fans of Obi-Wan or Book of Boba Fett. But then Andor came along and people loved that. And um mandalorian came finally came back and there were sort of mixed reactions to this season but still i think mostly positive that's been good it's just it's this interesting thing of 
Star Wars used to be about scarcity. You know, I grew up, I saw all three of the original movies in the theater. And especially by the time Return of the Jedi came around, because I was old enough to really appreciate at that point, the fact that we'd had to wait three years from Empire to see it. So it was such a huge deal that like in the opening sequence of Return of the Jedi, when everyone's showing up at Jabba's Palace one by one, the audience went nuts every time you saw somebody like Lando Calrissian lowers his face mask slightly so you can see it's Billy D. Williams and spontaneous applause. He hasn't done anything. It's literally just, hey, it's Lando. And that's in part because like we had only gotten two of these other movies and we had to wait so long in between each of them. And now there is, if not Star Wars year round, we're reasonably close to that, you know, especially when you factor in the animated shows. And so suddenly it's a lot less special. And therefore, I think they have to be better overall to get that level of excitement. And I think Andor certainly was. And I think Mandalorian certainly was at the beginning. So it's possible, but it's definitely like it's they've created a different kind of challenge for themselves now by trying to pump out so much of this stuff. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. They're sort of creating it to more super fans, but the super fan universe is gigantic. And and I will say the season finale of The Mandalorian season one was incredible. Uh, and like that would that reminded me of like why I fell in love with it. I'm not just me, I'm millions. Why you fell in love with this is, uh, as a kid. Well, listen, Alan, thank you for joining me. I, I cannot tell you how much... Uh, uh, how much your recaps of Succession have added to my enjoyment of this show. Uh, you're writing right now at, uh, I don't throw this word around a lot, but you're really writing at like a, uh, you know, a, a, Le- a, Le- a LeBron in 2007 kind of uh, <laughs> oh, Wow. So keep, yeah, so keep it up. Alan Zeppenwall is Rolling Stone's chief TV critic. Go to rollingstone.com and find his work. You'd also obviously find him on Twitter. But again, if you are into the television shows um, that you know people are talking about on a daily basis, uh, he's an absolute must-read. Um, Alan, thanks for making some time today and uh, continued success. I, uh, myself, and my producer Patrick Antonetti, we promise you at least two downloads for every new piece. That's that's what we that's what we give you in exchange for coming on free today. Thank you for joining us on the Sports Media Podcast. But between that and the LeBron James comparison, you have left me very humble, Richard. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Alan Seppenwall. I really enjoyed that. Uh, check his work, guys. He's a terrific writer. Uh, previous episodes over the last couple of weeks, we had Brian Curtis of The Ringer and Ben Strauss of The Washington Post talk about Pat McAfee's move to ESPN. Endeavor president and COO Mark Shapiro was on this podcast for... Uh, about an hour people seem to enjoy that find that enlightening did something on the nfl's television schedule with sports media watches john lewis peter king was on this podcast talking about the nfl daniel jeremiah had chat finn and austin carp regulars on not too long ago dana o'neill and tim Layden on horse racing um again if you like these podcasts please leave us a five-star review and a nice note that's how the podcast continues i want to thank my hard-working producer patrick antonetti for all his hard work i want to thank everybody at uh, odyssey for their support and thank you for listening we'll see you soon on the sports media podcast okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 